Welcome back to Chloe's Questions, where I question life, current events, and pretty much anything that doesn't make sense to me, while Jay tries not to laugh at my unique viewpoints. Today we have special guests with us to talk about visual history and recoloring old photos. I'm excited to introduce Jordan Lloyd. It's so nice to have you here to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It is great to have you. So can you tell us a little about yourself, like where you're from and how you got into this kind of thing? Uh, yeah, so, um, well probably tell about my accent i'm british um i basically come from architecture school i didn't really anticipate getting into this whole thing uh coming out of architecture school you know uh, 11 years ago it, it was one of those really weird periods where the 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 last global recession was happening and um you know i was kind of looking for for work immediately after after graduating and uh you know, I have I had a few things on the go, and you know, actually, this this whole thing which I do now for my job is actually originally like so many people my hobby, and it kind of just escalated really. But uh, you know, architecture school was great; gave me a bunch of skills I thought I would never put to good use, and now I use all the skills I learned in architecture school to this job of mine, um, and increasingly, you know, probably the rest of my career. What skills did you learn that you didn't think you were going to use? Oh, gosh. Um, architecture school, well, certainly the, the school I went to was, was really great for a number of things. All architecture schools will probably tell you that will, they will teach you to become an architect. And whilst that's true to a certain extent, I think the skills you actually learn day in, day out during the course of you know the seven years that you do it um, have more to do with sort of being able to develop ideas and being able to research rigorously and also being able to sort of think about uh, challenges. I don't want to say problems necessarily, but challenges in ways that are probably slightly unusual, um, but do it in a way that is actually plausible. And, you know, it does require a great degree of uh, rigor, I, I would suggest, and being able to sort of put that together uh, in a way that makes your your whatever your project is at the end, you know, compelling. Uh, and also, it also teaches you the skills to actually be able to present or illustrate, quite literally, the the ideas that you're having. And obviously, you know, you, you're looking at that through the lens of you know the built environment. But obviously, you know, the course of the last few years I've, I've begun to understand that the lens in which I view the world doesn't necessarily have to be from architectural design necessary but now increasingly history and one of the other great things that architecture school does is that it forces you to think about the very small as well as the very large so when you're looking at any particular project you, you're looking at really the consequences of what your project has on the community around it, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But then it forces you to then think about, well, you know, how am I going to design, I don't know, this particular seat? What's it made of? How am I going to make it? What process am I going to use to make it? And I've tried to take all of that thinking into the way I think about history. And something I like to say 
the way I look at history is that when people think of history, you know, a lot of people think of it as this kind of abstract concept, which happens in a linear timeline, right? Mm -hmm. And um, being able to actually challenge that and say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be a historian with a particular specialism, because there's plenty of people who devote their entire careers to learning in great detail one bit of history. What I am interested in, though, is being able to take something that's very small, like a photograph, and then research it to the point where there are going to be things I know about that photograph that even the original photographer probably didn't know at the time that photograph was taken, and then try and contextualize that and place that at some point in history, right? Uh, and then that is the that's the bit where I think the research and the thinking starts paying off and it makes the whole thing much more rewarding than just thinking about, hey, that photograph is a black and white now it's in colour, right? Um, so, yeah, it's really an ongoing process for me thinking about not just how to take the skills I learned in architecture school and apply them to history, but it's also... You know, the, the, the research gets better with every project and beginning to ask the right questions. And all of a sudden, you know, you can examine any photograph or any historical document and start thinking about it more like a forensic investigation. Does that make sense? Kind of like um, you have you, you, you start with a photograph and then from that photograph, you can infer quite a few things. And then start going from there. And, and, and it's that process, I think, that uh, keeps things interesting for me and hopefully people who look at the final thing. Whoa. <laughs> I didn't realize there was that much that went into it. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's going to work. I, I think you kind of just described this, but I I'm just want to make sure I'm in the right spot. So what exactly is a colorist in a visual story? Is it is it just taking things from the past and kind of bringing them to the present in context, or is it a little more specific than that? Well, I think ultimately that's a question that can be answered by both the person doing it, i.e. the colorist and also the person viewing it. Like the, the way I like to think of it is almost like a pyramid of attention, right? So this is one of my good friends, Alistair. He, he came up with this idea, which is like, if you want to engage people, you have to command people's attention not for just one second but you need to captivate them for one minute one hour one day one week and so on right so it really becomes almost like this rabbit hole of investigation and discovering things that either have been written about or well documented but seeing it in a brand new way or actually brings something completely new to the table right so um and that's and that's where it gets really interesting. So, like, you know, if we were to talk about the history of adding color to photographs, right? It's basically one of the earliest forms of Photoshop. So, you know, being able to record uh, the world on a piece of photosensitive glass, paper, whatever it is, it's been around since the eighteen fifties, and then literally within the same decade, people were coming up with lots of different ways to add color to the obvious limitation of the camera at that point, which was that it couldn't take photographs in, in, in color. Right. And so you've got this wonderful history of people, 
you know, throughout the, you know, literally even throughout the Civil War onwards, um, sort of hand painting or hand tinting these photographs. Um, and, you know, it goes as far as France, America, all the way to places like Japan. There was this guy called Felice Beto, who's a British Italian photographer, who went to Japan in the 1860s and documented the end of the Tokugawa shogunate, right? And he had this workshop full of guys whose, whose job was to literally just paint over the original photographs. And then Beto could then sell the colorized or the hand colorized photographs to wealthy tourists. But it's a it's a tradition that has been around a long time. But when you think about the intrinsic motivation that these guys had, right, it, it was less to do with historical accuracy and more to do with having something that looked really good on a shelf as a commercial product. So it gets really interesting because like when you start looking at things like uh, hand tinted photographs, you know, on postcards, for example, you can't really be sure that that is an authentic or an accurate representation of the thing that you're supposed to be colorizing just because um, you could get five different versions of the same postcard and all the colors will be all over the place because historical accuracy is not the necessarily the aim, but commercial, you know, looking good on a shelf is the main aim of that, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes this really interesting sort of conversation you can have with yourself between like, like how historically accurate could I, you know, could I make this thing? How can I turn this black and white photograph of whatever and then go through a process and at the end of it have something that you can say was historically accurate? And the answer to that is I don't think you can have anything that's historically accurate. You know, we're not not time travellers. I'm not Bill and Ted. I don't have a cool time machine. <laughs> but, you know, I can think about these things and do a lot of research and do what I would definitely call historically authentic version of what that photographer might be looking through, you know, at through their viewfinder, right? Um, and and that's really the kind of the end goal. I mean, there's lots of people who complain about the work that I do and, you know, all the people who do what I do, um, you know, they think we're vandalizing history, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard all the arguments. In fact, I had one guy email me to tell me that he hated my work so much that he was going to rewrite his will so that none of us could touch his black and white photographs. Well, that was very nice of him, huh? <laughs> yeah. So it, elicit, it definitely elicits a very strong set of emotions when you see see the work. Obviously, you know, we're talking over this over a podcast, but, you know, when you see that transformation between the black and white, which we definitely associate with the past or our parents or grandparents' generation, and then see it in colour, and if it's done well, you would never know the difference anyway, right? Right. Um, I'm just, I'm still kind of stuck on that vandalizing history. Like how... What kind of mental gymnastics are they doing to get to that? Do you know or to be honest, I don't I don't I can I sort of have to respect that particular perspective, but I don't I don't agree with it at all. Mm -hmm. Because fundamentally, you know, and, and these things usually come up in opinion pieces and it's hilarious because like, you know, it will be me or some of my colleagues, you know, who are far more famous than I am online. You know, inevitably, like it will be like an opinion piece for a magazine or a newspaper where they've got 
some distinguished academic or whatever who's done this opinion piece on why it's you know why it's rubbish uh and then and then then offer us and then just tag us right (laughs) (laughs) well thanks like without actually asking us our opinion on on the on the whole thing and it's just like well firstly we're ignoring a whole a whole history of artisans who did it by hand Mm -hmm. uh, and that really is a skill that you need to cultivate a lot of patience to do you know but ultimately I genuinely think if you, if you looked at something that was so well done, you can't tell the difference, then why are you complaining at all? Right. I think there's definitely this thing about like people with, um, you know, purists, you know, that they, the, 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 the thing was an art form and it should not be tampered with. It should not be remixed. And my, and, and my state, my, my sort of rebuff, rebuttal to that is simply, you know, it's, it's not a substitute for the original. The original's still there, you know. The original's still mm-hmm. probably in broken bits of glass or mouldy or you know deteriorating. Um, and I think they fail to miss just how much work actually goes into restoring the original black and white photograph to begin with, let alone adding color to it. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that almost color photos. L- make things more real because when you see black and white pictures you're like okay well that was a long time ago but then when you see it in color you're like man maybe that wasn't that long ago well yeah i mean like and i think that sort of immediacy elicits that sort of visceral reaction that people have because all of a sudden you you remove that layer of abstraction right and the reason why that is is because we are biologically programmed well most of us anyway are biologically wired to see the world in color right mm-hmm. you know, trichromatic red green blue unless you're color blind but you still see the world through color right and when you add that layer of information back in to something that was previously in black and white all of a sudden you remove that layer of abstraction right it's one step closer and then when it's one step closer i found in my experience you tend to the details seem to leap out at you. So if you looked at a photograph in black and white, you looked at the same photograph in color, I can almost guarantee that details that you didn't see in the black and white will suddenly leap out at you in full color. And all of a sudden, you know, there are people from the 1920s and 30s, they're wearing denim, they're smoking cigarettes, they're drinking beer, you know, and then all of a a sudden you're thinking, you know, these people are like long dead, but, they're doing the same things I do, right? Right. Um, it, you're like, oh, wow, these are actual people, not just a picture in a book. Right. It, exactly. And I think, that you know, the thing is also that kind of whole stereotype, especially when you're looking at, um, say, photographs from like the 1850s and 1860s, which were, you know, sort of they they were staged uh, immaculately. You know, you turned up at the at the, the studio and it was usually in like an attic space where they had lots of natural light and there was a particular dress code in terms of what colors you were allowed to wear because that, you know, because photographs from that time, you know, they were sensitive to certain channels of light, for example. So if you, if you wore blue, for example, it would appear white. If you wore red, it would appear black, that kind of thing. And these things were like a big deal. They were a big occasion. It was the first time, if you think about it, where, Ordinary people could have the same sense of occasion 
that you would have for sitting for a portrait, right? And if you were sitting for a portrait, you know, from like antiquity all the way through to like the 1850s, it was a big deal and it showed that you had money. Um, but now you can all of a sudden, it, it became a lot more affordable for you to now sit and have a portrait taken of you that could then be replicated in, in a lot of cases. Uh, and it was suddenly affordable. And so you, you have that, you have that sense of occasion, which is why people look also stiff in in early portraits. And as time goes by, they become more candid, you know, uh, up until the point where you know people are just completely relaxed and you know they probably don't know the photograph is taken. Um, how there's that sense of how as camera technology improves, so do our sort of attitudes uh, in society change as well you know, from, from the very stiff and formal to, you know, the very informal and casual, for example. And you can see that reflection literally as recorded history, you know, when you look at the difference between something, take, you know, Abraham Lincoln in 1863 or 1865, all the way through someone in the 1930s. It's very different. I think that was the first time I was like still just like focusing. I didn't have a question. I think Jay was probably impressed on that. Um, <laughs> when you restore photos, is it do you do it all digitally or do you do it like with some sort of paint or how do you do that? Yeah, so um, I I like most people work digitally and um, I the only person I mean like you know there's there's lots of like really old school photographers who can do a lot of sort of photographic manipulation in black and white in the dark room. That is completely a world I really don't know anything about. Um, but I did watch this fascinating documentary about this Japanese chap who, who had managed to come up with like this chemical process for taking really old faded photographs and manually making them look like they were just taken and it's quite extraordinary i mean when you when you do it digitally you know when you compare it to doing it by hand you know there's there's no contest i mean like with digital work to a point you can probably restore just about anything it's just how much time you choose to throw at it and um the whole restoration thing is really is really difficult actually what a lot of people don't realize is that the restoration in, in a lot of cases takes nearly as much time as adding the color um so generally what happens is uh people will have a photograph you know whether or not it's like a picture of your grandma or something or like something they found online or it's a historically significant significant photo whatever Generally, what happens is that I would say in about 99% of cases, there will be some work that needs doing to it. So, for example, in the early days, photographs are actually on glass. And a lot of the time that glass has been broken or shattered, you know, just through poor storage or someone's dropped the box or something. And that's really interesting because you have to essentially reassemble all the pieces like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, and then and then actually, you know, be able to clone out or replicate the, the missing bits of information, right? Um, then there are things like scratches and tears, and scratches can be a real bitch. Uh, you know, 
I don't, you know, and, and the scratches usually come, I mean, it's not like, you know, like a cat's been at it. Like the scratches, a lot of scratches usually come from, you know, back in those days, the way that the, the, the chemical solution was applied, it might just be like, you know, fine scratches. It might be the brush that used to apply the development chemical or something, right? And, and you can see that it comes out. And there's like, you know, if the photographs on a piece of paper, for example, like, you know, the usual like mold, mildew, foxing, that needs to be repaired a lot of the time. Sometimes someone's just ripped out the photograph or someone, you know, there's a big hole in it because someone's burnt a cigarette through it or whatever. And um, it all takes time. The, the really the really hard stuff comes when you have to do what I call a digital reconstruction, right? Which is, it's not the same thing as restoration because restoration, you have that information there. And so you just have to repair the existing information. In a reconstruction, the, the material just isn't there. Composite in that material from either a completely different uh, area of the photograph or from different completely different photographs altogether and that's a real mind bender um like that is that takes a lot of skill to do well i think um so yeah you can spend hours and hours and hours doing it and that's just digitally you make it sound so easy (laughs) i'm sitting here imagining like me throwing things and cussing trying to figure it out and he's just like yeah sometimes you just do it Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you could probably use that analog of like doing it literally, you know, with scissors and other bits of photographs and stuff. I mean, it's like the digital version of that. And, you know, uh, people do it all the time. And what I'm seeing a lot more in colorist work is is people compositing in details that weren't in the original photograph. I do it quite a lot as well, depending on what needs doing. So a really good example of that. and maybe you can maybe show the picture on your website. I'll, I'll give it to you via um, mm-hmm. email. But there's a really great picture I did of um, the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., taken in like 1847 or 1849. Back in those days, blue, the color blue was very sensitive. The uh, light was very sensitive in the blue channel. So when you see that photograph, Whatever sky was there, it doesn't matter if it was like a sort of an overcast day or it was really sunny. It's just complete. There's nothing there. It's completely obliterated. It's just white. Um, And so a good example of where you can do that restoration work is to introduce a new sky in that would likely to have been, you know, the, the same lighting conditions, you know, based on. And you can determine that thing based on like shadows you know, um, like a long shadow, for example, might indicate, you know, that the, the, the photograph was taken in the late afternoon, for example. Um, often when I have a look at a photograph, the first thing I do is look at the shadows because the sharpness of the shadows tells me where it is in the world, really. Um, you know, somewhere like England, you know, you don't really get a lot of sharp shadows during the year because we spent most of the year... <laughs> You know, it's pissing it down for most of the year, so no one, like, you, never see, you, never see, you never really see the sun, right? Uh, but somewhere like Spain or somewhere like Texas or somewhere like that, you know, um, the shadows are going to be very sharp. And if there is something, for example, like let's say there's a building in the background or there, you know, there's like a clock tower or something like that, if it's still there, you can look that up and then you can then figure out 
what direction that photograph is taken in, right? So if it's like a famous building, like the Capitol building, I know which facade or which direction that was taken in because I know the facade because it still exists today, right? And then from there, you can say, well, okay, the shadows are pointing left. I know this is the east, the east-facing facade. I can make a rough estimation and know this photograph was taken in, like, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, right? And that helps you start deciding uh, what, am- what atmospheric conditions there are in the photograph, which gives you an idea of what the overall look is going to be because light interacts with the atmosphere in different ways and it you know it produces all these amazing colors right um and so doing that sort of initial investigation actually helps you realize you know what you're likely to be go- uh, likely to be looking at i've had quite a lot of practice at this now so i'm i'm pretty good at guessing but you know um that that's that's really helpful because uh because then it allows you to then you know have an overall idea that okay it's like so getting back to the whole restoration business this this sky is completely white but i know from the shadows they're slightly fuzzy so i know it's an overcast day i'll find an overcast day contemporary picture and then i'll match all the lighting and all of like the the perspective and if i do my job right you will never know that that sky was comped in it's kind of like special effects right if you if you like everyone complains about special effects only when they notice them right the vast majority of special effects done in hollywood nowadays are for things like the background and no one would ever know unless you saw it right it's the same thing with the restoration work a good rest good restoration on any photograph you would literally never know it was damaged to begin with that's pretty cool it's almost like there's some like super top secret sherlock holmes kind of style investigation you have to do before you can get to it yeah absolutely one of my friends calls me a colored detective i uh, uh i i I like that you should change you should change the title i I went i went with visual historian instead i thought it was a little bit too much like a sort of like a plot out of a novel uh, or justify (laughs) that but um you know, in a way, in a in a way, he's right because it really kind of encapsulates the sort of day to day of my job. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there who think that, you know, it's like what I do is like like an artist sitting in front of a canvas. You know, I start getting the paints out, get the crayons out, or whatever, and I start just like coloring in the lines, and then it's done. And whilst that is true to a certain extent, um, it it doesn't really include all the meticulous restoration work, all the sort of the investigation and all the research and all that meticulous time you have to spend repairing the damn thing uh, before, before it all starts coming together, right? And therein lies the appeal for me because there's always some or a number of elements that all need careful attention and the final result is the is the gestor of all of those things working together right um and you know usually when when i'm finished with a photograph there's there'll be some aspect of the photograph that maybe people aren't really aware of you know um i did one i did a portrait of charles darwin a little while ago and you know 
I think most people would probably know something about, you know, uh, the theory of evolution and, you know, he was the guy who came up with that. But what a lot of people probably don't know, uh, which I found far more fascinating, was that he likely died of, of parasitic uh, organisms in his head. Really? From a, Yeah, from a, from a trip to like Argentina or something, you know, which then... Mark that off my yeah, list. So after, you know, I mean, like, it's it, it's allegedly, right? But, you know, after that ex- particular expedition, I can't remember where it was, you know, he was in ill health for the rest of his life. You know, constant fatigue, uh, a number of ailments that really relegated him to his home. Um, and so, therefore, this argument that Charles Darwin actually died of a parasite, you know, for me, just makes that aspect of his legacy so much more interesting, right? Because it's even even the man who, you know, who gave us the, the theory of evolution, you know, uh, can sort of die in this really sort of weird and dramatic way. When you start to do photos or you are getting ready to restore and colorize them, how do you pick which photos you want to do? <laughs> so the mercenary answer to that is I'll look at any photograph that anyone sends me for money. <laughs> right. Uh, Gotta make a living. If I, I find I find what to do very interesting as a question, just because actually, again, not many people know this. I, I actually reject probably nine out of ten photos I see. And the reason is is simply because I, I don't feel there's anything I don't think there's anything inherently interesting or technically challenging about them. But also sometimes, you know, there there are photos which I simply think look better in black and white. There is no reason, there's no reason I can conceive of to put it in the colour that would that would uh make that photograph any better than it than it already is. Um I tend to find as I get sort of going into my career in the long term is that I tend to get attracted to images that help me sort of tell a larger story. So, you know, for most of the time I've been doing it, I've been sharing images that I think have, you know, some, they're interesting to me either because, you know, I like the story or I just like the picture and it's just a really great picture. Um, But I also like, you know, if if I know a, a photograph has a really interesting history behind it, no matter how mundane, I think that's also worth looking into. But I've tended to find that sets of pictures, um, sort of multiple images around a particular theme are now drawing my interest a lot more because you do find out a lot more history and a lot more research. And, you know, they're the kind of things that if I read them in like the newspaper or a magazine, it's the kind of thing I would be interested in. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm currently working on a uh, a couple of series at the moment. So, I'm I'm doing uh, a set of portraits of former slaves that were taken in the 1940s, and you know the idea that even as late as the 1940s, you know, slavery in its own way still existed is very shocking to me. And to sort of see recorded evidence of people that you can see in the photograph that take you back to an era that you can't really imagine because it was so long ago 
and know that those people were born into slavery just makes the whole aspect of the whole history of it like a lot more shocking, right? Um, but then it could be something completely different. So another thing I'm working on, for example, is a there was a great American photographer called Russell Lee who who went to this um, this town in New Mexico called Pie Town. And and it's just like, you know, it's it's a town that exists literally right next to a highway. And it's called Pie Town because basically they had a pie festival there, right? So every year all these people would turn up to have pie. And that was, you know, that was the reason why people went there. But, you know, those photographs he took in color at that point became some of the well, you know, the best and most well-known photographs of that era, especially in that particular medium. But I was really interested in the the hundreds of black and white photographs he took at during the same period in the same in the same trip, right? And it's really interesting for me to sort of be able to turn into color these photographs of the American experience, but also have actual real color photographs to to reference off because I usually don't, right? And um, and there's you know another set you know very recently is um, uh, a set I did with Unsplash. So for those who who don't know, Unsplash is um, like the world's largest royalty free stock site. So you can go on there and you can type in any conceivable keyword and find really amazing high resolution images on just about any topic you can think of, and it's free to use, right? And um, they got in touch and they wanted to do a project. And I said, well, guys, the March on Washington's, you know, the anniversary is coming up. How about we do a set around the civil rights movement? Uh, and so that's what we did. And we did 20 images, um, which I'm sure you can link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a really, really powerful and really important set for me to do because for the first time i had a i had a partner and a collaborator who could really get these important images seen by as many people as possible and get them into the hands of students and educators and people who were just curious about the world and trying to maybe contextualize you know what's happening in america today for example and this is real this is where the real magic of the whole thing comes in is because we can look to our own past and we can see things from our own past that either uh, I wouldn't say repeated I would say are reflected today and you know people people can see an obvious parallel right and 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 understand and be inspired that this you know what's happened in America days today is not the first time it's happened mm-hmm. and you know, it's 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 something that the American people must continue with. Um, and to be able to share that set was really powerful because, you know, since the 1960s, when these photographs were taken, full color, high resolution photographs of that particular era were not a made were not made available to the public, which I find absolutely crazy, you know. Can you believe that it was only like literally last month was the first time that someone could download a high res full color picture of Martin Luther King or John Lewis or, uh, you know, Angela Davis or uh, Thursgood Marshall for the first time in color 
in 2020. I mean, that's crazy, right? Um, and that's where I think the whole idea of history and the kind of work we do becomes much more accessible to the public because a lot of these photographs are hidden away and the only way you can access them is if you pay the people who own those photographs a lot of money which is why you only ever see them in magazines and newspapers right and not and not you know like at at schools for example because they don't have the money to buy it right i did get i got an email when you did that from unsplash because we use unsplash sometimes on our website and right. I got an email. I got so excited. I screen, screenshot it. I sent it to Jay. I was like, oh, my goodness, he's going to be on our podcast. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, that, you know, case in point then, you know, uh, we're on the other side of the world. We don't know each other. And yet you've seen you've seen the work. And mm-hmm. um, that is a really powerful statement. You know, I had a guy there was a guy, he was like the receptionist at like the local leisure center who recognized me from a Vox video. I don't know this guy, <laughs> but he recognized me, um, which really is testament really to how far the work goes and, and the scene. I know I have literally no idea once it's out there, who's looking at it. Um, but when you get emails from educators and students or people who are just inspired by the work, it's, you know, it, it's a real positive in, indication that you should probably continue. Um, and so I am now moving much more into if I'm going to do photographs, I'm going to do a set of photographs around a really interesting topic or a story, and I'm going to tell the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. And so it gets back to that whole thing about attention, which is like, you know, like the one, the the one second, the ten second, the one minute version is, hey, that's that's pretty cool. These photographs are in color, right? But the 10 minute version or the one hour version of that is I can now read the entire story about these photographs that's never been told before. That is super cool because one of my things where I ask so many questions is because I want to know the why behind everything. And I know especially it drives Jay insane, but I think that it's really cool that you're doing that with pictures to tell the why behind the pictures. Right, exactly. And so this is why... I'm, I'm kind of moving into uh, this this category of what I I call visual visual history, right? It, you know, it sounds pretentious, but actually, well, it might sound pretentious, but actually, it's a far more accurate uh, sort of description of what it is I actually do, right? Because I think there's a danger that when people think about colorization as a thing. You know, it gets relegated to some guy getting the colors out and sort of like scribbling whatever they feel looks right. And kind of uh, it kind of ignores the sort of the wider, uh, not just like getting the details right, but it kind of misses the historical context. And 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 of course, you know, with the technology that we have at our disposal, you know, people think that the next big thing in colorization is being able to colorize film because Peter Jackson did it right. Um, or whatever, but actually I feel like the, the, the really interesting places to go is to use the same technology in production values that we, we, we do and apply them to our own history. Right. Can you think about like how many millions of dollars were spent on like, you know, uh, realizing the world of restaurants 
in Game of Thrones, right? And actually being able to take the same production values and actually apply them to our own history. I think that would be such a wonderful thing. We have this thing in, in England called English Heritage. And English Heritage, their job is to... They've got like about 400 sites across the country, uh, which they effectively manage and stop from falling into ruin, right? And these could be like, you know, ruined churches to like stately homes. And something that always gets me is I will go to like, like a ruined abbey and I will, and I will look at it and then there'll be like a little plaque where someone's done a sketch or like a watercolour painting that was obviously commissioned in like the late 80s. And you know, they go, This is this is what the refectory might have looked like. And I'm looking at this sort of watercolor sketch and I'm just thinking, it's 2020. Like, <laughs> why why do we not have, you know, at the very least like a photorealistic version of of what this space might have looked like six hundred years ago or whatever, right? Um so there's that whole area beyond photography. In fact, any any part of recorded history that you know there are means to uh, there are means to visualize that and then present it in a way that's interesting for people, right? Uh, and that's kind of that's kind of what I would like to do now. So it goes beyond beyond just individual photographs. We're looking into sets. We're looking into you know potentially books or other forms of media. Looking at these areas of history that no one has bothered to visualize and that's really exciting so so i guess one and a lot of your work is exciting and and this may be hard what is your favorite restoration like is there one that pops out like that was my favorite project ever yeah that is a hard question (laughs) um (laughs) i like i like doing different once for different reasons so um so one of one of my all-time favorites still is there's this brilliant photograph taken by dorothy lange in 1939 of a country store in uh in north carolina in gordonton and it depicts a scene of uh just four or five guys sitting on the porch one of them is having like a coca-cola or something and then the store owner is just kind of hanging about in the doorway. Now, in 1939, the reason why I suspect that photograph was taken was simply because America at that point was so racist and so segregated. It was a remarkable composition of remarkable photograph in as much as that there is a white store owner just kind of casually hanging out with black tobacco farmers, right? Which is why I suspect the 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 original photograph was taken. And it's really interesting because you see the juxtaposition between the sort of the advertising, the, the the tobacco advertising, which is aimed at white people, you know, of all of like the sort of like the, the sort of like the idealized American citizen, you know, saying, you know, camels are good for you because the doctor said so and all this kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and. Yeah. Doctors. How time to change. Um, but I, what what was really interesting about it? I mean, firstly, it's like one of America's most iconic photographs. I mean, it's amazing. But it 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 took like a week just to do the research I needed to look up all of that stuff uh, to make sure I got all like the signage right. You know, 
Um, and then there are other aspects about the photograph. So one thing I noticed that a lot of people do is that they they prematurely age a lot of the details in that photograph. So like there'll be like you know it'll be some wood, and they'll they'll think that the way to make that look more realistic is to make it look more grubby, and that's not true in in this particular photograph anyway, because at that point that bit of the building was brand new, right? And so you have to understand the context in which things were taken at that point. So, so that's one of the photographs. There's one I haven't released yet, but I'm quite close to finishing, which I've been sort of doing on and off for ages, which is a photograph of a newsstand from 1938. And let me tell you, this thing, this, this newsstand has like 200 different magazines on it, you know, like, Time, time, you know, Time Magazine, <laughs> Photo Play, which is kind of like an early sort of like photographic gossip mag. And then you've got all the Pulp Fictions, you know, everything from Weird Tales to like, you know, all action aces or Western Western romance stories and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, let me tell you, man, it's like, you have to look every single one of those up. <laughs> Every single one. And I think I've probably hit about 90% of the ones I've managed to find. And there's a few that I might just not be able to find at all, despite my best efforts. But when you see how much work has gone into this, you think, wow, that's that's really cool. It's such, a, such an amazing photograph. But then I also think, how much punishment did I allow myself to do this? Um there are there there so I do I do I do different photographs for different reasons. So like an, another one that people might recognize is um there's a picture of Antarctica taken in 1911. It was taken on the Falcon Scott expedition in January 1911 and it's a picture of uh two geologists in the in the mouth of an ice cave and behind it if you look carefully you can see the ship the Terra Nova in the distance. And what is amazing about this photograph for me is like, firstly, uh, Herbert Ponting's composition was just absolutely just amazing. And I then started thinking like this, can you imagine what it must have been like to have been in existing in the 1910s and then in the newspaper reading about these people who have gone to Antarctica, you know, this place that no one's ever been to, and you and and if you're lucky enough to see one of these photographs, it's just like this this desert of ice, right? And that must mm-hmm. be such an amazing trip for people. And that's in black and white. And then of course, like, you know, I start putting it into color and like, you know, I had to like look at different ice formations and you know, different ways that ice forms and stuff like that. And, you know, I looked at, you know, probably, I don't know, about 20 different national geographics just to get the overall look right. And what really amazed me is like when you when you see it finished, I mean, firstly, it looks like a really modern photograph because, you know, it's so saturated. Um, and that's what something, you know, something that people don't really expect is that, you know, that, that whole landscape is full of colour. Um, and it kind of just hits you. Like, it's such a visually arresting photograph. Um, you know, so there's there's pictures like that. On the other end... There's a picture I did for a for a chap uh, of you know he was a he was a professor an American professor who had this kind of lifelong 
ongoing relationship with the citizens of Hiroshima in Japan. And I had to, he asked me if I could take a look at a photograph of a 15-year-old boy caught on the edge of the Hiroshima atomic bomb, right? And this poor kid, I think he was, he had to sort of lay on his stomach for about eight months while his back healed from the the blast wave. And let me tell you, having to colorize, you know, someone who's completely covered in third and fourth degree burns is, is not easy. And this is something that simultaneously, firstly, I think it's a much purer expression of how shocking color photography is, you know, once you remove that layer of abstraction. Uh, but it also it really made that whole event really real to me in a way that the black and white could never do. And it was really shocking. And, and you know, you look at something like that and the, any sane-minded, reasonable-minded person would think never again. You know, so there's definitely a power. There's definitely a power in it if you do it, if you do it sensitively and you do it correctly. Wow, I couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. Because now I'm trying to think of how to frame this next one. So, so my next question would be, what was the hardest one you've done? And I guess it could go one of two ways, like technically the hardest, which I think the new stand may be at least top three. I couldn't imagine that. And then like hardest, that, like, I don't know, maybe in the, the, the human sense, the hardest one that you've done where something has kind of gone from being like, it is what it is to you colorize it and it just kind of pops out. Like I couldn't imagine doing the Hiroshima. Yeah, that, that one would probably be a very good example of the, you know, of the very humanizing aspect of the craft for sure. Um, purely from a technical standpoint, you know, I did a, for my first book, um, History as I saw it, it, if you look in the middle, it's a double page spread gatefold of the entirety of San Francisco taken shortly after the great earthquake of 1906. And I spent a month doing that. <laughs> it was, it was I, I, by the end, I think I could sort of almost envisage what it must be like to be you know, like one of those painters who paints things, you know, hyper-realistically, you know, just days and days and days just spent on agonizing over small details, you know, and like your every instinct is to rush it, but you can't rush it because, you know, the final result's going to look absolutely amazing, right? Um, and and right. that was a really difficult one, not least because obviously you have to do a ton of research for that as well. Like, you know, San Francisco might be in a ruin, but there's enough landmarks standing around that you actually have to find out what these things are. And it was great because I had a, uh, I, I worked with my researcher Deborah, who who was brilliant because she got she got me like 200 references for that particular photograph, everything from like colored postcards and actually contemporaneous color photography, but she also got me stuff like insurance maps, you know. And all of this stuff just came in really useful. Um, and, you know, the, the it was so detailed. It was like taken from like a balloon that someone had, you know, the photographer had sort of rigged up. And it was a huge panorama. And honestly, the, de the, the, the scan is so detailed. On the docks of San Francisco, you can see individual boxes being loaded off the ships. Um, 
yeah, it's 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 insane. And it, you know, there, there are no real shortcuts to this kind of stuff. You gotta just gotta knuckle down and do it, right? <laughs> so yeah, but every honestly, every photograph presents its own challenges. So you've got to be, you know, I I think with the sheer variety of stuff I've had to deal with, um, I think, you know, I've probably seen it all at one point or another by now. Man, I'm sorry. I'm just in awe. I know I'm speechless. Uh, no, it it is crazy because you always think of it like okay you always see the same types of photos being colorized and to kind of hear that you've done this just wide wide gamut is yeah. yeah well i mean like you know i have to say i do see a lot of the same photographs on my social media feed now for sure um and i think part of the reason why i'm kind of moving away from sort of doing sort of scattershot approach is because everyone else is kind of doing that now. And it's not like, cause I want to be different. It's because I want to really get stuck into the real meat of what it is to, to do what I do. Right. And the only way to that is to go much deeper uh, and, and really start focusing on stuff that you're going to find that you're going to find interesting, you know, and, and that's kind of where the trajectory I want to take with the, with, you know, certainly my next books you know uh i've got i've got about 20 ideas for books and all of them are around a very very specific theme books plural so how how many have you written so okay. far uh so you can buy my first book and that's in like four different editions now so it's like you know there's the hist it's history as i saw it which is the us one you can probably get that in Barnes and noble or something like that um the original british version is called the Brit- uh, the paper time machine and there's a German edition, and there's also an edition in Czech as well. And I think there might be more foreign editions on the way. Uh, but my next book is set in World War II. And in fact, actually, I'm going to start beginning work on that in the next couple of weeks, actually, and start dedicating the next six months to eight months of my life just doing that. I'm very excited about that. And then beyond that, I've got... Uh, books either in development or you know ideas that i'm fully mocked up to show people um if they wanted to know what was going on but yeah there are there's a lot of great ideas because just because there are so many amazing facets to history and so many untold stories um you know that they're crying out for the kind of treatment i'm going to give them which is you know it's not just a huge block of text you know these ones are more like sort of visual anthologies really um you know there's lots of restored colorized photographs for sure there's going to be lots of maps there's going to be diagrams infographics reproduced archival material all to serve a very very specific story no i love that it's so much deeper in the picture i know the picture is worth a thousand words but you put a thousand words to it and that's awesome (laughs) right yeah exactly and then that's the you know when people say the past comes to life and they looked at visual you know, colorized photographs, uh, I sort of only partially agree with them because it's actually when you start reading that story next to it, that's that's where the real magic comes alive. And, you know, it's definitely something I definitely want to share with the world, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see the newsstand photo when, when, when you get that one. Yes, <laughs> I'll, um, 
Um, but when you start, you pick a photo for whatever reason you pick it. How long does it take you to have a finished product? Like from the time you pick it, do the research, do the restoration, colorizing, how long does it take you to do a photo? Um, yeah, I think that, again, that's a really difficult question to answer because every photo is literally different. But mm-hmm. talking generally, you know, like I would say anywhere between half a day to, you know, several days, really depending on the photograph, because you've got to you've got to assess the original damage on the original photograph. Right. First. Um, and then you've got to make that assessment. You've also have to do a bit of back and forth with you know who, whoever it might be you're doing a private commission or it might be something you know and you have to do that necessary research and that correspondence to get the information that you need um in a typical photograph i might have to do a few hours of restoration work to do it well um and then obviously the the research is effectively like a rabbit hole right like mm-hmm. sometimes depending on how much time I've got, you know, maybe I can only spend a few hours, but sometimes you go down this really deep rabbit hole and, you know, a week later you emerge knowing everything about that particular photograph, which you can then, you know, add to the, to the, to the story. Right. But I would say, you know, uh, anywhere between half a day to a few days, depending on the complexity of the photograph, you know, and um, it's difficult because, you know, you have to do, that appraisal then you've got to do all that restoration work you've got to do all that research and then you've also got to do all of the uh this is the bit where i think most people associate with the job we call it blocking in or certainly i call it blocking in um and that's the bit where you take your graphics tablet and you color in the lines right Mm -hmm. um and what you're doing there is that you you are you are creating something called a mask right it's almost like cutting out a stencil and then spray painting through this stencil right that's that's what you're doing and you've got to do uh you've got to cut out a mask for every single aspect of the photograph that you want to add color to um and and then once you've done that you can then start assigning layers of color onto it so like a face for example it can have anywhere between four to i don't know a dozen different layers of color and the the illusion of realism is is basically arises out of getting in that color variation from the deeper shadows to like the highlights right on a face then you've got to like you know maybe someone's drunk or they're old and so that you know like their cheek might be red you mm-hmm. know going towards their chin they might have you know if it's a man they might have stubble for example so you've got to take account for that you know what color eyes do they have uh, do they have any particular affliction uh, or um, if they are manual laborers in a sunny place how tanned are they you know what does their hair look like is it dyed you know uh, naturally black hair does not look anything like dyed black hair for example right um, then you use that same mentality and you you approach clothes you know, I did a photograph of um, Chinatown in 1896. There are literally about 100 guys walking down the street. They're all wearing black, right? You can't just do that in one shade of black because it doesn't look doesn't look natural. They're not wearing uniforms. You know, every single guy is wearing a different piece of black clothing. So therefore, you got like 80 or 90 shades of black. You know, they all got to be subtly different in order to 
give you that impression of realism, right? Mm-hmm. And so once you start once you start thinking about it like that, all of a sudden you can go from anywhere between dozens of layers to hundreds or even thousands of layers of color in a in, in a single photograph. And that's where you need that's where you really need patience for sure. Have you always been like super interested in history or did you become a little more passionate about the history as you were started colorizing photos? I think definitely the latter. Um, you know, I've always been hit, you know, like I, I didn't do history at school as a subject, but learning about history is one of those things that has always interested me in as much as that I would naturally gravitate towards finding out about a particular person or a place, you know, that I'm visiting or someone I want to know about. But, you know, the 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 passion, if I want to call it that, has sort of kind of arisen out of sort of doing this professionally. And it was like I said right at the beginning about architecture school, it's being able to make that transition between the skills and the mentality I'm learning in architecture school into this particular area of history that I'm still trying to define. Um, And, you know, hopefully I'm quite good at my job. I'd like to be much better at it, but, you know, everyone's got to learn, right? and so the passion really comes out for them. So like, you know, all that stuff I was saying about, you know, visual history, do sets of photographs. This is, this is a deliberate attempt to become much more, um, much better at exploring the depths of a particular topic, right? I, I don't necessarily want to be like known as a historian that knows everything about a particular period of World War Two, right? Right. You know, there's plenty of World War Two historians there's plenty of military aviation historians there's plenty of world war ii reenactment guys and let me tell you they are all going to know way more than me about a particular subject right but what i can do is present something that they're intimately familiar with and present it in a brand new way that they have definitely not seen before or if they are familiar with it then present it in a different way um that that challenges their expectations uh, and then you can like i said you can go into pretty much any era of history of recorded history and find that story there you know like i think it's it's really more about being able to 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 tell a really good story and that's what i think makes history exciting for people is when you can take something that's personal that you can relate to and then you have a really great narrative and you've got a great cast of characters just like any good novel you know you can create really amazing books around history and um and 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 give that to people and people i think will always be interested in it something i've always something i've noted in the course of the job is that no matter where you're from whatever your background is there will be some aspect of history that you're interested in. A lot of people aren't history aren't necessarily interested in history with a capital H. They don't necessarily know about big sweeping things like World War II or the geopolitics of the 20th century, for example. But they will be very interested in, for example, their personal history. Mm-hmm. You know where they came, where their family came from, and where did you know where did their grandparents come from, or whatever. Uh, whether or not you know you are from an area or maybe perhaps your great grandparents emigrated from somewhere else you know uh, people are always going to be interested in tracing their lineage right 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, there's so many aspects of the job that, you know, I don't think I'll ever run out of material, quite honestly. That's, I think what you do is really cool because me personally, I hated history in school. It was right. so boring to me. It was like, okay, memorize this date and this name. But the more as I grew up and the more I traveled and everything else, I would learn history from like real people stories. And now it's one of my favorite things to know the why behind everything. And I think that 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 you're kind of giving an opening to that for other people who maybe hate history factually, but when they can see people in it and relate it to themselves, they can maybe learn a little bit more about their history. Yeah, exactly. So like a way to think about it is like the colorized photograph is literally the shop window and something like a good book is the shop. And, you know, if you can captivate that attention and hopefully get people to read more, they might actually learn something, you know? Um, Yeah. And and that's uh, that's a really that's a really great thing. This is why, like you know, going back to the Unsplash stuff I did on the civil rights, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, I can go to bed at night knowing that I've made some small contribution to the world, which is being able to present something that people are aware of as a major historical event, i.e., the day that Martin Luther recorded "I Have a Dream," mm-hmm. and present something to people that they can have and use and share that has not been made accessible to them before, you know, and that is a, that's, that's a good enough reason I think to be able to do, you know, the, you know, what I'm doing, but all of these stories I'm looking at now, um, you know, and, you know, beyond, beyond the next book into the next one, you know, I've got some really exciting stories that I'm, you know, I really want to tell. It's just like, which order do I do it in? Right. When it comes to stuff like that, I know with the Unsplash, it was the civil rights and there's a lot of very similar stuff like that happening in America right now. Does that have something to do with why you picked the civil rights for that with Unsplash? Um, yeah. I mean, they, they were interested in doing a project and, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it was one of those things where, you know, it wasn't, like it wasn't like a cash grab or anything because obviously, you know, like there's no profit being made from it, you know, apart from compensating me for my time, you know, the, 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 there is no commercial benefit as it were, because the photographs are being made available for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and that imperative really to, to, to really say, you know what, we can now provide People who are interested in history, students, educators, librarians, you know, uh, like, you know, group organizers, whoever, you know, access to the stuff to use for whatever purpose they want, uh, I think is I think is really tremendous. And it really is, you know, I, I, I think is what I was saying earlier, you can't really I have no real idea of where this stuff ends up. I can put it out in the world and you know, three years later, you'll get a phone call, <laughs> you know, but, but for the next thing, I think really the, the stage on which I'm, what I'm trying to concentrate on now is really looking at how can I condense that or how can I make it more effective or how can I make it um, more relevant, you know, and I don't mean just releasing a bunch of photographs on a particular anniversary, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it has to go far beyond that. Um, 
And so, you know, there's always going to be opportunities or things to look into, um, which I think is is tremendous. And it's kind of coming up with finding that story and then having the skills, you know, beyond just being able to colorize photographs to be able to present that story in the best way possible. Right. Um, you do a lot of stuff with American history and colorizing those. Do you are you particularly fascinated with American history or is that just the people that want to work with you? Because we have a pretty short history compared to like British history or any other major country. You do. Uh, I Although I, I totally agree with that statement. Um, one thing America has in abundance, and I entirely credit the institutions that you have, like the Library of Congress and the National uh, Records Archive, is a wealth of public domain images that have been made available to the American public, in fact, or anyone with an internet connection, really, for a really, really long time. And I guess it's my day-to-day job to basically plunder its depths and find some interesting aspect of American culture to to, to present to people. Um, and believe me, it's like I would love to... One of the things I'm conscious of is is that, you know, I don't want to necessarily only do American history because mm-hmm. every country has a very rich history associated with it. The problem is finding access. So the main issue with photographs is, and that not many people know this, is that however many millions of photographs you think are out there in, you know, on the internet, there's millions more that you've not seen because they are behind a paywall. You know, mm-hmm. some institution out there uh, basically, you know, owns the rights to sell you that photograph through some sort of licensing deal uh, for you to use in whatever project that you want, right? Mm-hmm. And so once you put the profit imperative in there, all of a sudden the scope of what the pe- what people have access to is suddenly made very narrow, right? And um, and so it becomes a it becomes an interesting sort of dilemma to be able to convince organizations who usually have this paywall to basically say, you know, we could do a really great story around just 10 of your images out of millions that you might own. You know, would you be willing to share that? You know, and that that's kind of like an ongoing uh, question, really. And so that's why you tend to find the same photographs being colorized because out of all of the millions of amazing public domain ones there's only probably a few thousand really 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 interesting and good ones that people are going to engage with right Mm -hmm. um so again it's kind of it's it's trying to widen that and generate enough interest that people i mean the appetite's obviously there because that's why you know because people follow history accounts you know there's history accounts on Instagram with like four million people following them, you know, mm-hmm. it's crazy. So the, <laughs> appetite, the appetite's definitely there. It is crazy, and sometimes I like I'm sitting here with like eighty followers. So I'm like, man, how did they even get a hundred, let alone four million? Right. Well, I mean, like I can I can tell you, it's like firstly that people are usually interested in some aspect of the past, no matter how shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they have is. Um, effectively a very rigorous uh scheduling you know mm-hmm. um and here's the thing i don't get me wrong courtney i'd love to be able to share new work every day but right. i can't 
because it takes me so long to do pieces well to the standard that I have put myself to that I can't, there's not enough hours in the day, especially because I have a day job as well, you know, do more of the same, but you know, I can't really share that work because that work is private. Um, So it becomes a really interesting uh, dilemma for me, but you know, I think there are plenty of history aggregator accounts on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook, probably that, you know, that really benefit from the kind of material that we produce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think we actually have answered almost all of my questions. I have one more. It has nothing to do with history, though. Um, OK, first of all, do you have Oreos in England? Uh, yes, yeah, sadly, we do have Oreos and they probably taste exactly the same as uh as american oreos <laughs> yes uh, do, we do when you when you eat oreos which you sound like you don't love them but are you a twister or a dunker when you eat it or do you guys do something different in england with oreos just uh, i'm I, i'm a chomper actually so when i have them they tend to go in and then that <laughs> they they just you know i just eat them uh like i don't twist i don't dunk they just go in my mouth and they disappear um, <laughs> jay does the I, same thing i tend to um, so Oreo, like probably like the States, Oreo do have like an ice cream sandwich bar type thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the, because those ones are much larger, I, I tend to sort of nibble at them, um, you know, until until that's gone. Um, we don't, we don't. You can get Twinkies here, but there's something there's something like ridiculous, like ten or twelve dollars for a box. Twinkies you know, are but, not worth that much. Well, they. Uh, <laughs> the supermarket sells them at a a vastly inflated price Uh, yeah if you need twinkies you just let me know i'll mail you some (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, you know i can eat them they're they're good um i'll happily eat twinkies um as with most american snacks actually um i do love american food i must say all right. Well, on that note, send me a list of any kind of um, American <laughs> snacks British. you want, and I will send you a box of it if you'll send me some fun, like, British snacks. Okay, so, you got it. Yeah, I'm a absolutely. super foodie, so that would be the most exciting thing for me. Okay, well, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> all right. But, yeah, that was my last question. I ask all our guests that. I'm trying to see okay. if there's, like, a theme. But thank you so much for hanging out and answering all these questions for us today. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, I hope you guys found it vaguely interesting and I sort of realised it was less of questions your end and me just sort of barraging you by train of thought. But thank yeah, you, you were, for listening. You were answering our questions before we even had the chance to ask them. I love it. <laughs> right, well, that's that's great. And, of course, thank you so much for hanging out with us today while we talked about visual history and colorizing photos and my need for some British snacks. If you have um, any questions of your own that went unanswered today, go ahead and send us a message on the website, on Instagram, on anything, and we will try to get them to Jordan to get them answered for you. For more information or to see pictures on today's episode, check out our extended show notes at coesquestions.com slash history. And since you enjoyed hanging out with us, don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review, whatever Jay says about a tiger. I don't know. And we will be back next Tuesday to hang out, question everything, and maybe learn a little something about Halloween along the way. <laughs>